Welcome to The Elephant. And today we are having a conversation with Professor Lewis Gordon, who is a professor of philosophy at University of Connecticut. Lewis has written many books. Some of my favorites are Fanon and the Crisis of the European Man. I've known uh, Professor Gordon for a long time, especially when I was a PhD student. Professor Gordon, you gave me the words to talk about ordinary life, which I felt was very difficult and it's still very difficult in these very interesting times. So, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, as you know, I've been to Kenya. Yeah. And I, I look forward to my return. And uh, I could add to that, you know, one of the things I argue about ordinary life is that what many people don't realize is how extraordinary ordinary life is. That every day we get up and it's just an ordinary day is an extraordinary achievement. Mm -hmm. and, and there are people whose lives are being ripped apart because they're realizing how fragile it is to be able mm. to have the ordinary. Yeah, and, and from your work, I, I found a way to articulate the justice of ordinary life, that the struggle for justice is a struggle to have an ordinary life. I often, I, I often say to my students sometimes, one of the most graphic examples of this is simply walking across the street at an intersection or driving to an intersection. We have no idea that every time we do it, how much of our lives depend on the decision of another. And yeah. it doesn't matter how many laws you put in place. It doesn't, you know, in the U.S., a lot of people think simply having uh, stop signs and traffic lights. Mm. Uh, safe. You know, this is one of the reasons why there's so many car accidents, because a lot of people simply rely on people following the rules. But what mm. a lot of people, I notice when I'm in different African countries, as an example, whenever I'm in Dakar or times when, I'm in, when I was in Nairobi, when I'm in, um, you know, parts of South Africa, the, uh, and not just there, in India, it's a similar thing. The first thing that's, that's striking for a person from the United States is that there are few traffic signs. But interestingly enough, despite what people think, a traffic accident is always tragic because it reminds us of our fragility. Mm. But the truth is there are, more, there are more automobile accidents in the United States. And one of the reasons for this is, and you can see it immediately, I see it in, in Dakar, I see it when I'm in Hyderabad or Baruda. Because of uh, fewer traffic signals, when people drive, they have to pay attention to the other driver. And so they would look, at, and if they come to a roundabout, they're, they're not just looking at the car, they're looking right to the eyes of the other driver. And because of that, there's a sociality in driving. Mm -hmm. that, and because the whole point is, you want to get to where you're going without being in an accident. So this idea that the only thing stopping you is going to be a sign that says stop is just ridiculous. But I've had classes where students have come in where that day they've lost someone because as a pedestrian, they're crossing the street and they're hit. And the thing about it is, in those moments, they were just doing what they did every day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're on their way to work. Sometimes they were just coming home. Just an ordinary thing. So many of us don't realize, and not just, I don't have to pick graphic examples like car accidents and those. A lot of people don't know just how extraordinary it is for human beings that we can get up in the morning and have breakfast. Mm, yeah. There are people who have no food. You know, it's just, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. Yeah. Oh, by the way, thank you for uh, mentioning those. I, I'm glad those books had an impact on you. You know, this year is their 25th anniversary. Bad of faith uh, bad, bad Faith? 
Yep, an anti-black racism and fan on yeah. the crisis of European man. The publishers are preparing anniversary editions. Of okay. course, they're going to be del delayed because uh, I don't know if I told you, but uh, apart, I'm 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 still convalescing. I was one of those afflicted with COVID nineteen. Yeah. And so there's no way I could have gotten could have gotten the work done. But now I'm functioning enough and getting to see you and speak with the community. I'm yeah. Full of endorphins. Good things are flowing through my body right now. Thank you. And, and in fact, I wanted to start on that point about ask you how you're doing. When, when did you fall sick? How did you get through it? And then how is your family doing? My family are doing well. Uh, fortunately, uh, my, uh, well, my children are, 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 are oh, it's hard to call them children now because my, yeah. my eldest is 31 years old, <laughs> you know, and, you know, they have their partners living their lives. Our, so our baby, our baby will be 19 next month. So he, oh, he's wow. the one living with us. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's my wife, him and me here. And my youngest, he has the immune system of a god. So he's perfectly fine. But, uh, and uh, and my wife is doing fine, you know, you know, Jane. Yeah. The, um, the situation was very simple, uh, and it's something I would do again, which was um, when the uh, lockdown was happening in New York. We we went to our son is at university. We went to move him out of his dorms, and of course, the thing is, dorms are basically petri dishes, and mm -hmm. so. As we returned, because I have pre-existing conditions, uh, I got very ill. Uh, my son was not ill, but it may, meant he was a carrier. And, um, and my wife was only ill for three days. She's very strong and healthy. And, uh, and I uh, was basically uh, ripped apart. It was really horrific. Uh, people don't, one of the reasons people don't get it with this disease is because you see the, the we are dealing with a consequence unfortunately of also doing something right which is when you quarantine people you're you're restricting the the path of the virus but the thing about quarantining that people uh, don't realize is that it places people out of sight so it means that it's not only unless you have a powerful microscope, the virus is invisible. But where it can be made visible, which is in the symptoms on the afflicted, mm. because the afflicted are quarantined, most people don't see people walking around looking like zombies, you see? And then when you think about healthcare workers, again, because they're wrapped up in so much to protect them and the patients are wrapped up in so much one is not seeing what's actually happening to them. However, when I was ill, because I also write on uh, philosophy of medicine and psychiatry and other areas, I was studying my illness while going through it. So this meant that I quickly noticed things that weren't being reported, you see? And I subsequently found out as I chronicled all of this, that a lot of what I was identifying was really on target. And in fact, I have doctoral students who are in connection with friends from Wuhan, China, 
who, who informed me that a lot of the things I was discovering are things that they began to realize. For instance, uh, ambient temperature is very important. And this is one of the reasons that, uh, that a lot of people end up dying when they go in hospitals. People always ask me, did you go to hospital? I always answer, no, I was not going to hospital. Because given the racism in this country and, and all kinds of other things, you know, black people get it, go in, but we don't come out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so, but there, so I had to use a combination of what I learned from my grandmothers, and my granduncles and others, because they're more connected to a Jamaica that was connected to Africa in a period when uh, uh, med medicinal practices were better understood. And a lot of people today stereotype traditional medicine because they think it's like somebody doing some witchcraft over you. But that's not the way traditional medicine is. When I was a child sent out to, to pick herbs and different uh, you know, um, medicinal resources you know, from the land, it was, they were always explained to me in a way that later on, as I studied Western medicine, uh, made sense. You, you don't just simply tell one, somebody, pick that bush. You explain mm -hmm. whether, what qualities it has to reduce fevers, to, uh, if, it's, if it's high in antioxidants. The language of antioxidants may not have been used. Mm -hmm. in a different language, for instance, that it will cleanse your blood. But that's what antioxidants that's, do. Mm -hmm. so, so that's one thing. But the other thing is I learned that you have to, that this was not a flu. Okay, this is not a flu. This is something completely different. I had fevers you wouldn't believe. Uh, I, I saw things coming out of my body and you know, dripping over my eyes that looked like a horror film. And at that point, this is not a flu. And when I, when I report what my temperatures were, this is the other thing, too. A lot of people are reporting symptoms that with other illnesses would have meant they were dead, yet they were walking. For instance, people walking with pneumonia. Mm. And uh, so those were, those were some of the, uh, the many features that were at work. But I, could, but I, got, I could tell you something, though, that uh, given the audience, uh, this is something that uh, they may appreciate. When I was at the, the, the worst of the illness, you know, with fevers of 105, 106, you know, pain, pain beyond belief. Mm. There, there were moments where I would hallucinate. And my favorite hallucinations were visits from deceased relatives. You know, my, my, my mother would visit me, my grandmothers, my father, my, my, my favorite uncle from my, my grandfather's brother, you know, my, my, my best friend who died many years ago. And they would sit there and we'd have wonderful conversations. Now, of course, it'll freak a lot of people out. But for me, yeah. it, was com it was comforting because, you see, and that I knew I was hallucinating. Clearly, it, on one level, there are projections of my subconscious. But on another level, and you know, in another way, it's interpreted as visits from the ancestors. Mm -hmm. but, the main, but the main point is, whether you say visit from the ancestors or projections of my subconscious, it doesn't matter. The thing I learned from their visits 
was how comforting it was. And then I missed them. And when you get to spend some time with people you love, that you, 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 you just thought you'd never see again, it is so calming and so beautiful that I wasn't feeling pain at those moments. And this is something important to realize. You know, I made that joke about endorphins at the beginning of our conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, endorphins help our body heal. And I learned right away that, that this illness is also stress sensitive. If you get yourself angry and afraid and stressed out, you will get sicker. So I realized at that moment that the, the, I was receiving a gift. Mm-hmm. And it began to help me give. And I began to, despite what I was going through, try to find positive things so I could have more endorphins, uh, uh, less stress. And that helped the healing process. Mm-hmm. In addition to, of course, drinking large glasses of, I boiled ginger roots. <laughs> yeah. And large glasses of ginger water because it's, it's an anti-inflammatory agent. It's an oh. antioxidant. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a probiotic. It's very, and it helps flush the system uh, during such a terrible um, infection. And, and, you know, um, oh my, there's so much to talk about there. One is clearly there's, um, there's, there's, there's you're, you're caught between, you know, the, the panic and the fear and the politics on one hand and the politics of healthcare. And then on the other hand, you have the comfort of, of, uh, of medicines passed down and also visits from from the ancestors and i was i was wondering what your thoughts are on just medicine as we know it or rather western concepts of medicine what exactly are being projected through the lockdown and you know the cures we are being proposed to like vaccine um and you know and and ventilators and also the 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 disempowerment we feel especially uh, here in Africa because the treatments we are being told about are out of our reach and the solutions that are being recommended do not involve our input so I was wondering if you could talk about the whole the whole landscape of what is happening in terms of medicine and where people of African descent, all of us, are where we fit in this global narrative. Okay, well, what I'll do is I'll I'll work backwards. First, I'll begin with why I brought up the invisibility issue. Because you see, when people don't get to see what people go through with the illness, they'll actually, you know, get to see it concretely, then it becomes surreal and, in, and even worse, irreal. In other words, it, it, it seems almost as if it's a hoax, as if there's a fiction. Mm-hmm. And that's why, and, and I always say that we shouldn't put people down who on some level don't believe it because it's not before their eyes. They're mm-hmm. not seeing it. So, so they have no idea how terrible this thing really is. I'm one of the lucky people. I'm alive. 
But while I was going through it and studying every detail, for instance, right now in the United States, a lot of people don't understand this. And, and this connects to your, your question in a very crucial way. The United States has a lot of technological resources, but of course we have an incompetent, <laughs> malevolent level, set of leaders. Mm. And as a consequence, in a country with so many resources, there are a thousand people a day, dying a day from this disease. And that's the official count. That's not the, that, that's the people who end up in a hospital, diagnosed with COVID-19 and die. Mm -hmm. That's not common. All, a lot of people are just dead from COVID-19, but were never diagnosed. Okay. So this is, an, this is really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Then we have to think about the fact that the figures we're hearing about the infection are only measuring 3% of the population who are tested. So this thing, the actual numbers could be 10 times, 20 times the number of people infected. We don't know. But this is very crucial. So this invisibility issue, of course, leads to other kinds of invisibility. Because you see, the quarantine person is now also invisible in the sense of the, the people are to stay away from her or from him, you see? And that's why there are people dying alone. Uh, I have so many stories. I've lost students. I've, I've lost uh, friends. I've, and I have a, a good friend who, who, was, who, was, who was born in a concentration camp, a Jewish friend in, in Paris, who survived all of that. And uh, her ex-husband, who became her best friend, they were very good friends, he died isolated alone from this. And all the family was told was that they could go to the crematorium and stand outside at physical distances to watch his smoke ascend into the air. And you could imagine, if you think about the ovens of the concentration camp, the levels of trauma these people were going through. You could think for us, if we were, could be put in situations, there were something that we had to be put in shackles or the fact that so many black people, because we're the highest number of people dying from this, are just being put in pauper's graves. So, mm. so that's the first part. And as I go back, <clears throat> backwards from this invisibility and this quarantine issue, now we come to the question of another invisibility. I'm, as I mentioned to you, I'm absolutely convinced you have to drink a lot while you're convalescing. <laughs> so people yeah. will see me drinking a lot. It's, it's, it's because it's, it really is. It dries you out. Right? I'm convinced if I went to a hospital, I would have died. Because you see, if I'd gone, Western medicine is premised on the belief that a sterile environment is a cold environment. And mm -hmm. so hospitals are cold. And if I were put on a ventilator and I did have the infection in the lungs, it would have blew cold air into my lungs. Now really think about that. I discovered that uh, because I had a special uh, heater fan and an air purifier, I discovered that when the temperatures went down below 72 degrees Fahrenheit, I couldn't breathe. So I had to increase it above 72 degrees Fahrenheit, okay? And, and I literally, I actually felt the, the infection receding in my lungs when the room temperature was warmer, you see? Now, if I were drugged up, if I were sedated, or just pure, pure condescension to a patient, 
where people would not be listening to me, how would I have been able to explain that that cold air being blown into me and being in a cold room would, would, would have been killing me? Do you see? So this is a very crucial point because you mm -hmm. see we have technology and a particular model of medicine. Now I mentioned to you and I also teach in philosophy of medicine and within it, um, philosophy of psychiatry and psychoanalysis. And, and you already know that I write a lot on Franz Fanon, a physician. Yeah. Well, what a lot of people don't know about Fanon is Fanon was concerned with this very issue. The way I'm describing when I talked about the ancestors and I talked also about the question of the subconscious, it's a false dilemma to think that it's either or in an exclusive way. In other words, we need to connect them. What Fanon found out was that we, we, have, we should understand that there are fundamental questions we have to ask about health when we think about medicine, okay? And a good way to think about it is with, say, mental health. Too many physicians in Fanon's time thought of mental health physiologically. So they wanted mental illness to be a neurological illness. Fanon mm -hmm. discovered when he was working with patients in, in um, Lyon and in Saint Alban and also in Algeria, in Algiers and also in Tunis in Tunisia, was that a person could be neurologically ill but mentally healthy. A good example mm -hmm. is epilepsy. Mm -hmm. You could be, right? If, if, if neurological illness were an issue, then all epileptics are mentally ill. But I'm an epileptic, and I'm, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And they're many yeah. epileptics. In fact, most of the people we study in history uh, of, of many kinds, from Prince, the artist Prince, all the way through to, to um, you know, Alexander of Macedonia, uh, Socrates, all the way through to people such as Dostoevsky, there's so many, uh, they were epileptics. So the thing, the thing is that mental illness and neurological illness are not identical. And he also studied, he, he, he began to look through to notice that there's some, there's certain peculiarly social dimensions to mental illness, okay? And this raises more complicated issues of social dimensions of other kinds of illness. So for instance, if we think about medicine, the thing that there's something very pragmatic we have to remember with medicine, okay? The pragmatic thing is that medicine is also very communicative. So what Fanon realized is that you, the, the, the very concept of a passive patient would actually worsen an illness. Patients have to be agents of their own convalescence. And so he, had, so he saw the physician's work as developing a relationship with the patient in which the patient is part of a team to produce an environment of health. Uh, this is the feature I notice of the best physicians I've, I've, I've encountered. And one of my physicians in the, in the past, I, I, I wish I, I could be around her now, but it's when I lived in another uh, state. Uh, she, she was a former MASH physician. A MASH physician is a person who works in the battlefield. So, and so when I would go to her, 
she did all of the, the work on the premise. She knew how to do blood work. She knew how to do, you know, all kinds of tests. But, but a meeting with her was three hours. And you'd say, what? Why, why is one meeting with an endocrinologist, a person who studied diabetes and other illness for three hours? Because two, about two, uh, sometimes two and a half hours out of those three hours were spent simply having a conversation. And because her view was that each patient was unique and she had to study what healthy was for me. You see, there are people yeah. make the mistake of thinking that health is whether everybody has a certain, all the same dystolic levels or, you know, sugar levels, etc. But actually, that's an effort to have one shoe size that fits all. Mm -hmm. So the more she could understand what's healthy for me, she could understand where, for instance, an erroneous um, prescription, an erroneous effort to, to alleviate an illness could actually exacerbate it. Mm -hmm. You see, and this is what people are discovering. You see, the thing about COVID-19 is that it is, it, it's not simply the virus. The virus looks for the vulnerable sites of the body and it exploits our, 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 our already, our pre-existing conditions. So once we understand this, we have to understand that one has to relate to this in a very different way. One has to find a way to enable to, to, uh, the body to be able to fight, for us to be able to fight, to strengthen, to close those doors, so to speak, that were open for the virus to get to those vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, that is why the visit for the, from the ancestors are important, or why we should not abandon certain insights from the collective knowledge of health, okay? Uh, what would be healthy for a person who's Danish, for instance, uh, may work according to certain things that would make her or him also happy. But for a person who is Kikuyo or Luo or Oza or Wolof, mm. you should not be alienated from what affirms your, 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 your spiritual health while you're, you are fighting the physical battle with something like a virus or some other physical ailment. And, and in fact, uh, one of the features, at least, that uh, I have been feeling about the pandemic is this sense of, of we, are, we are not being seen as Africans, we're not being seen as subjects in our own treatment. And so we are hearing people talking out there and predicting how we will be, you know, falling down, you know, all over and dying from the disease as if we are not there and as if our humanity does not matter and as if we don't have a say. And in fact, uh, Kenya has even had a problem with uh, the pandemic claiming more victims of police violence before the victims of the disease. But I was wondering also, how, how did medicine become so disempowering? What is it in the training of, of, of uh, medical workers, especially the doctors, that makes it 
sorry to say, it looks like a very elitist uh, profession which uh, disempowers us more down the hierarchy you go. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up the police uh, because, as you know, in yeah. some of my writings, yes. I consider one of our pandemics to be police violence. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't even say police brutality. I call it police violence. Brutality presumes that they had the right to use force. It's just that they used it excessively. No, there are mm -hmm. cases where they shouldn't be using any force at all. In fact, I actually take a more radical position. I don't think we need police anymore. Humanity lived for a long time without police. And a lot of, and what was the grammar of policing? The way mm -hmm. we understand police today is the same thing connected to the question you have. Oh, the, to the question, let me just, so we don't have any uh, interruptions. I realized I left a particular file open. I just want to close it so we don't have a bing sound or anything like that. <laughs> but anyway, um, so the thing, the thing that we don't realize is these are, these are outgrowths of Euro-modern colonialism in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Euromodern colonialism is as, as a set of dictates that we've inherited and their consequences are really severe. Uh, one dictate, as we already know, is the very notion that, that, um, that there, there's a group of people who function like gods. So the first part is the hubris, right? Any human being relates to another human being as a god is already a colonial relation. It's a problem. Mm -hmm. But the whole problem with people treating themselves as gods is that they treat themselves as perfect, as if they have no flaws. And once you deal with people who are supposed to be perfect, then it means you are always in relation to them, not just imperfect, but you also represent something that's, uh, that should be eliminated because you represent um, a, form of, a, a form of infection or a malignant presence. So there's not only the hubris of superiority and, and, and the notion that there's a group of people who are perfect, but then you also add to it uh, Euro-modern capitalism. Euro-modern capitalism basically says by virtue of a certain group of people's perfection and superiority, they have a right to everything, which means they could exploit everything. And what happens is that they project onto the world a kind of God, and that God be becomes the market. Now, of course, I make a distinction between markets and the market. All over Africa, there have always been markets, mm. in the mm. but the market is a form of idolatry that creates one over all others. And the market then takes the position that nothing should be separated from the market. Nothing should be out of its reach. And as a consequence, it creates a subject. The subject for the market becomes the person who, as its expression on earth, should have everything. And if you know, the colonizer has to have everything. Mm. The white supremacist is the person to have everything. They're supposed to be every, everything positive they're supposed to have, and everything negative is supposed to be external to them, which means they also see themselves simultaneously, not only as those who get everything, but they also, whenever they don't get what they want, see themselves as the victims. Now, if we look into that, if we look into that structure, if we look into that structure, we also see other things that happen. And this is very crucial because you see, it's, humanity has always had medicine. We've always been trying to find a way to, to, to alleviate misery, to prolong life, to, 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 but, but not just simply in those, but also <clears throat> medicine as historically understood in many communities was about <clears throat> 
not separating the human being from the wider environment. So this model that you can be healthy completely independent of everything else, for most of the history of humankind was just a delusion. However, if you think about the way Euro-modern medicine is, it's totally connected to what I just talked about with capitalism, colonialism, mm -hmm. and racism, because the subject of it is, this, is usually a he, but there are she's who do it, who believes, but I'll just say he now, that he can be all-powerful, independent of everything else. That's why Euro-modern liberalism talks about a man, his property, his things, and what he can, he can have and do without anybody else. Mm. And anybody who stands in his way is a problem, okay? However, human beings are relational beings. We're very vulnerable, fragile creatures. We're connected to the world and we affect our environment. So it's not just how we affect each other. We know we affect other animals. We affect trees, we affect rivers, we affect the entire world around us. We're now polluting the skies above us. We have, there's a whole litter of satellites just floating around encircling the earth and we're also spreading our garbage throughout the solar system and the rest of the universe now with that if we don't understand responsibly how we relate to all that then we become a disease rather than the people who are exemplifying health so the first thing to bear in mind the way i talked about health earlier is similar to the way we should talk about science one of the big problems is is that Many people today confuse technology with science, mm -hmm. and, they're not, and they're not the same thing, okay? One, and, and if we look around, there are many people, for instance, who know how to use technologies, but they have no idea how they work, what they're about, how they connect to communities, etc. you see? So, and that's where science is different. But of course, science, many people don't understand because they confuse it with the technology. So they think the scientist is simply like the engineer or the, you know, the person who's using all kinds of gadgets and tools. Mm. But that's not a science. The scientist is the person who, in trying to understand the world, develops a way of communicating their understanding from their understanding. You see? So that understand, view of medicine is like that physician I talked about, the one I, with, with whom I would have long conversations on health and mm. approaches to, to uh, having a good strategy of developing a healthy condition, which is, and this is what Fanon talked about as well. Any physician who talks at a patient instead of with a patient to develop a strategy, that person is functioning technologically technological medicine, technocratic medicine, and that is intrinsically hierarchical. However, a person who understands that medicine is about having a community become healthy actually in, uh, helps cultivate the agency of the community, which means, of course, there's a greater way in which medicine in that sense connect to other concepts such as democracy, etc. So if you look at the very attitude of the way many African communities are treated in discourses around medicine today, it's actually a continuation of the grammar of colonialism instead of what it is to go beyond colonialism or in today's language, decolonize it or develop a decolonial form of medicine, 
which would be a lot like participatory democracy. The idea is not to say that the patient has spent all these years in medical school and may know all, all the intricacies of how one deals with certain forms of medicine. That's not the point. The point is something different, is that the patient can have a better understanding of how to work with his or her community around the question of health. In year five of the Algerian Revolution, this is what Fanon talked about when he pointed out that being involved in political practice makes one realize that one has to learn many things in order to relate to one's community as a political agent. A good example right now, we're witnessing this right now. Remember I said there's more than one pandemic. There's yeah. the COVID-19 pandemic, but there's the pandemic of right-wing assertions of trying to impose on humankind an anti-democratic presence. It's an effort to try to push us back into the 19th, 18th, and 17th century, where a small set of overlords rule, and the rest of us are fodder or just instruments for their individual wealth. Mm -hmm. the, what people taking the streets all over the world right now are asserting their right as people uh, to have agency over their condition, and they're actually arguing for democracy. You see, what we're living in right now is an age that's dominated by anti-democracy. But a lot of people confuse. They think democracy is simply showing up at a voting booth. And that's, that, and that's the same problem, similar to the way people misunderstand medicine and health. Some people think that, that, that uh, medicine is about going to a, visit, to a physician, you see? Or getting a prescription to go to a pharmacist. That is not medicine. You see, in fact, anyone who knows anything about medicine could tell you that the greatest resource to getting towards health is nursing. It's not actually seeing a medical doctor. A medical doctor is more a diagnostician. A medical doctor is more a person who may try to set up a strategy. But the implementation of it, and not only that, the, the, the decision has to be made when the physician isn't there, but the prescribed stratagem is failing, that person has to make a decision on the spot. The story I told about my illness, for instance, yeah. I had to be, and my family and I had to be nurses, you see? And although the world told us one thing, we had to admit when something wasn't working. And that means we had to learn how to make decisions, you see? And some people, here's to give you a level of naivety. Some people really believe that the amount of COVID-19, the amount of, of, of the novel coronavirus in, um, infection is a function of testing. How often do people go to a physician and the physician would say, I think you have a cold, but I can't say with certainty unless I test you. Mm. That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. We have developed sufficient competence to know when we have a cold or an illness. You see what I'm saying? The specificity of it may require more. So here's the thing. The thing that what we have to understand, okay, is that there's so many symptoms involved in something like this disease that what we need to develop is medical competence. And medical competence is something very different. 
this is where, where everybody can actually learn this and how to respond very quickly. And I'll give you a very simple example that comes from not a lot of ancient African medicine and something that worked really extraordinarily well for me. One of the, the symptoms of COVID-19 is diarrhea. Now, it, of course, the first thing that goes to your mind if you have diarrhea is how to stop the mm. diarrhea. However, the reason we have diarrhea is because our body is trying to expel a, a terrible substance from our body, in this case, the virus. Yeah. So the, I determined, and this is what I learned in my childhood, that the fundamental thing at first to do is not actually to stop the diarrhea, but to increase the fluids. Yeah. Because the danger is dehydration. Mm -hmm. Once my temperature had reached, a, 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 I was still with fevers, but once it reached a point where I could move, I had a, a sufficient amount of strength, I did something that many in with Western medicine would say was counterintuitive. I drank a lot of fluids and I, and I made an herbal laxative. You see? Now that people would say, wait a minute, what in the world are you doing having an herbal laxative when you have diarrhea? But of course, at that point, what a lot of people don't know about the large intestines is that that is one of the ways, it's like a highway system to our body for the virus, for many viruses. So you flush the system out. But I, I waited until I had sufficient strength because if I did it too early, you see what I'm saying? That mm -hmm. could have had a negative impact. I would have been dehydrated. So I drank as much as possible, drank things like, you know, salty soups in order to get a certain, you know, level of blood pressure and took the laxative and within several hours, my temperature dropped Drop. significantly. It went, it, it went from averaging 104 to 102 degrees Fahrenheit to 97 degrees Fahrenheit and 98 mm -hmm. degrees Fahrenheit, which meant now that my body was fighting back. Now, again, you know, how in the world would I receive that if I had tubes in me and I'm in a hospital room? You know, and so you know, they're undressed. You, you see them in the hospital with, you know, bare chests and ventilators. You know, you'd yeah. think the first thing to do is to keep them warm because I know. And, and, they're losing and, and heat. Point, yeah, and my point here is not entirely to, to um, uh, offer disrespect to medical workers. They're working with mm. the sphere of the knowledge they have. Yeah. But what best medical workers I've talked to said is they all said to themselves, this is new. They're learning while they're working. Mm. In other words, they were doing exactly what I was doing. I admitted this was new. So I had to learn while I work at it. Mm. Every excellent physician, every excellent medical worker, and an excellent patient is a student. It's a person studying the illness to learn from it yeah. what works and what doesn't. So, and, and if you think about it, that's also an allegory for democracy. Because a lot of people mistake governance for democracy, right? They think it's about people telling you what to do and what works and what doesn't. But no, mm -hmm. democracy is people actively working together with the commitment to finding solutions to their common problems. Sometimes they will make mistakes, and it's where they fail to admit they make mistakes that they get in trouble. 
if we see, admit things aren't working and we say, look, we've got to try something else. Yeah. <laughs> that is a similar approach. And it struck me that there are people in, in liberal theories of society. I have, a, I have a, a book coming out called Freedom, Justice and Decolonization. And I have a chapter where I talk about the mistaken way we talk about justice. And what we fail to understand is that there are skewed models of justice in which you can claim justice was achieved while social, social um, ill health continues. If you think about ancient African conceptions, it's very different. Mayat, for as an example, which was from the people of Kemet, ancient East African peoples of Nubia um, and what's today called Egypt. A lot of people don't understand that. A lot of the people were studying ancient understanding of humanity is from where you are right now, all the yeah. way up through Sudan and up to other areas. What they understood is that justice is a subset of a larger social health. You see? So the idea that you can have just, that, that things are, you can only have, say, fairness, paid off a debt, et cetera, and you ignore what it's doing to the society. That, that's an example of an imbalance or a lack of mind. Okay? Mm -hmm. Think about the, the, the so-called post-colonial environment, post-colonies. What's not talked about is that the colonizers have placed a lot of African countries and, and on the demands of liberal notions of justice and rights, but in high debt <laughs> that creates yeah. social Ill health and poverty and poverty, but also and also the imposition of medical practices that may fail under the conditions of tropical mm -hmm. environments. It's absurd, for instance, to have as the models of architecture, the models of health, the models of of political organization, models that were designed for living in northern European cities where there, there is snow and it's a good idea for people to be covered with a whole lot of clothing all the time and living tall buildings because heat rises, right? It, mm -hmm. it, if one is going to think about what it is to live in an environment that's more equatorial, things should spread out and have ways that air could circulate. And there should be ways in which the communication of how power is distributed should be very different, right? Participatory democracy is about understanding that power should be distributed in a way that cultivates empowerment. You see, the mm -hmm. negative, the negative neoliberal, it's all about me model, is how do I accumulate power through limiting the power of others? Whereas a participatory democracy model basically says, how do we build institutions that enable people to actually um, um, act on their abilities to make more things happen? In other words, to increase the probability of human agency in the world. Mm -hmm. so, so one model of power spreads into empowerment, institutions to make us grow, Another model <laughs> is to disempower people 
and say it's all about me. And if you think about colonialism and racism, and if you think about how colonialism and racism are, are intimately connected to the production of dehumanizing people at the levels of gender and sexuality, we understand that they are fundamentally forms of disempowerment. So it means that we need to have a more creative community understanding of what empowerment is. Mm-hmm. And that connects also to medicine. And, and um, speaking of uh, the police, uh, maybe you could uh, give us your comments on what's happening right now in the U.S. with the, with the protests against the death of, the, the killing of, of George Floyd. Um, yeah, and, and do you sense, uh, a friend of mine uh, and I have been discussing this, do you sense there's uh, uh, an element of decline in empire and I wanted, I was wondering if you could tie this around the kinds of arguments you make in, uh, in disciplinary decadence about human systems uh, by virtue of being human, not being uh, eternal. Yeah. Sure. Well, sure. I mean, those points I made before about deluding ourselves that we're gods, mm. it leads to a false naturalizing of inequalities. What the, the basic thing that we have to understand is that it, that things that depend on human actions to come into being require human actions to come out of being or to be transformed. And what decadence does is to silo it, to hide our, our role in what we produce. So, for instance, uh, uh, if one treats one's discipline as a god, then ultimately the, the methods, the rules of one's disciplines are as if handed by a god, which means you simply have to follow the rules. And if asked, why do you do it this way? The answer is, because that's the only way to do it. The, the, however, if one understands that the methods, the disciplines were created for, to respond to a problem in reality, just like the way we talked about medicine, our criticism really wasn't of medicine. Excuse me, I have to cough. <coughs> our criticism was of disciplinarily decadent medicine. Medicine that fails to understand its relationship to this thing called health, to reality. So what I argued is that we have to take responsibility for the knowledge we produce, the social systems we have, the institutions we've built, and as a consequence, it's in our hands to transform them. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something that, that's a, a realization, not just for me. This is something that goes all the way back to black thinkers from the 19th, the 18th century, etc. Uh, one that many people know today is W.B. Du Bois. And what the, boy, the way Du Bois put it was that when a society fails to understand its, its responsibility for itself, in other words, that it's in the hands, Fanon put it this way, that society depends on human actions to exist. What it does is to make the people who don't fit or the people who are dominated by it, it makes them into problems instead of addressing them as people who face problems. Now, people could get to be, could be led to believe that they are the problems. Mm-hmm. Until they begin to realize the double standards that may be out there, 
the ways in which social forces may be pitted against them as a people. And at that moment, they begin to ask the question, what, isn't there something wrong with a society that makes people into problems? It's a lot like what Richard Wright said to Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, when Sartre asked, you know, Richard, tell me about the black problem. And Richard Wright said, there's no black problem. What are you talking about? It's a white problem. It's how, it's how they treat people three black people. Mm. But similarly, people miss, miss the point. They think the problem is Africa. No. There's a problem of what was, of, of the people who impose upon Africa the identity of being a problem. Africa, if Africans understand Africa as like any other um, place with human beings, as places that face problems instead of being the problem, Mm -hmm. then we can act upon what we can do to change those problems. Well, if we come to the United States, the situation in the United States, there's a lot of people, if we come down to the question of the police, uh, the boys had written about this, the police, because uh, you witnessed this, the police in the United States were created fundamentally to block the movement of black people. Mm -hmm. it was, it was, they were designed specifically to make sure that free black people would never be uh, substantially free. And so this in effect, and Du Bois said it very well, it in effect made every white American a deputy of the state, okay? And as a consequence, it meant every white person structurally had the right to hold or do anything he or she wants to a black person. Now, and, and this also applied to indigenous peoples, such as you know Native Americans. In Africa, of course, it converges in two levels because Africans are both black and indigenous. Mm -hmm. So it's a double whammy there, okay? But the, but the point here, once we understand this, we begin to see the, the structured behavior of a society, that's a problem society, that makes certain people as the custodians over other people as problems. So what does this mean? Well, the immediate way to look at this is before we get to say George Floyd, we could think, we could, we could think about, for instance, the idea that there are black people who, there are white people who went and killed claiming that they thought these black people were doing something wrong. They were acting upon the presumption that, these, that they, these white people, are deputies of the state. Okay, now let's imagine in a normal society, in a non-racist society, every citizen is a deputy of the state. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Now let's look at what happened to George Floyd. If that is correct, then it meant that the, the citizens should have been able to look at what the officer was doing and say, you're committing a crime. They should have been able to intervene, grab him, stop him, George Floyd would be alive. Now, as we know, all over the United States, when white people see anybody as doing something wrong, they, they have often, as a collective, just went and did it because they have that right as deputy of the state. If black people act upon that right, we're told we're committing crimes. But, so a lot of those black people were defenseless because this, that crime would have been called the assault of a police officer. 
But the problem is the police officer was committing a crime. He was killing, he was murdering a human being. And you could imagine the double level of trauma. Not only was George Floyd murdered, mm -hmm. but there is the psychological trauma and guilt of witnessing that murder. Everyone who witnessed it functioned as a kind of survivor, but at the same time, a sense of guilt. And if they keep it in, they will implode. So what we're witnessing, because that was seen by so many people, is they're now exploding. Because you see, the collective guilt is now taking the form of saying, we should have done something about this. And we should do something about this. Mm -hmm. So that's more a psychoanalytical analysis, you see, about what, about what we call survivorship, okay? Because it creates, it's a kind of survivor's guilt that manifests itself out there. However, these people are not simply dealing with a psychoanalytical issue. You see, that point I made about quarantining, that, about things being hidden, well, in a way, there's been another pandemic, which is the pandemic of colonialism and racism. Yeah. And what, it does, and what it does is quarantine the dirty laundry of your modern society. It quarantines, it puts out of sight the way my illness and other people are dying from this are put out of sight. It put, it put out of sight the rapes, the lynchings, the exploitation of labor, the, 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 the imbalance of services. Look, a lot of white people have pre-existing conditions. Why is it that there are more black people dying from the disease? Well, the answer is, is, is cannot be the existing conditions. It has to be the structure of service when one um, reaches out for help with the pre-existing condition. Mm -hmm. So I know on one hand, I don't want to down the medical workers, but we have to deal with the fact that the, uh, the, 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 the administration of medical services in racist societies is also racist. You see? Mm -hmm. So if we put it the litany of these things, all of these things, these things are being pushed out into the open. And there's a, the, the technical name for that, Jane Gordon actually used this term. Paget Henry called it potentiated second sight, uh, d d but Jane Gordon called it potentiated double consciousness. And what potentiated double consciousness is, you have the first double consciousness when you're conscious of a society that makes you into a problem. Mm -hmm. okay. and, but many people believe they are the problems. All over Africa, there are people who believe Africans are endemically um, dysfunctional. Yeah. All over the United States, there are people in all over North America, South America, Europe, people believe, right? The first kind of double consciousness. They believe that black people are, are intrinsically um, um, maladaptive, that we are, that there's something wrong with us. But the point at which we realize, wait a minute, anybody who's treated the way we're treated, anybody who's put in that situation is going to have these outcomes. Then we realize the real question is, why the hell are we being put in that situation? Yeah. And that's when you have potentiated double consciousness. You deal with the contradictions of a society that puts a double standard on you. The fact of the matter is, people are now, when they, they see this, that, those people taking the, the streets are embodying a potentiated double consciousness because they're saying there's something wrong with the society. You see what I'm saying? And we know there's something wrong when you can have a, a moron 
a, a, a malicious, predatory, debasing, incompetent, um, um, what's, uh, uh, misanthropic individuals strut around mm -hmm. the most powerful office in the world and look us in the face and see is an exemplification of superiority. What Trump is revealing is the fraud of white supremacy. And the thing is that a lot of his a lot of supporters are invested in that fraud because it's only in a world that stacks the decks in their favor can they even with their mediocrity survive. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people don't understand why his the, the, the terrible things he's doing right now? No. They support him for giving them a psychoanalytically precious gift, and which is on the night of his election, they had the resentful satisfaction of the consternation of the harm they put on the rest of us by witnessing their, their miscreant emerge as president of the United States. That, and they're forever grateful for it because it gives them a moment to have a sense of satisfaction over the rest of us. So a lot of people don't understand, even though they are the people he has harmed the most since then, mm. right? He's harmed farmers. He, a lot of these people with these MAGA caps, he has destroyed their lives, their futures. It doesn't matter. Therefore, all they want to have is that. It's like the person who wants to cut off the nose to spite the face. Mm. They, they'll be forever thankful to them for that. But the fact of the matter is, now we're dealing with a larger consequence, not only with Trump, but the global ascent of right-wing forces onto the funding of very rich capitalists, <laughs> you know, not only in Russia, but also across parts of Africa, parts of India, mm -hmm. you know, and, the, and parts of North America. And the consequence we're having is that, you see, they may have these fantasies of the market, these fantasies of, of a world of, of, of eroding governing services. They may have all these fantasies, but the purpose of organizing, when I said organizing institutions for empowerment, institutions for empowerment are institutions that provide services. There's no legitimacy for government if it, has, if it provides those services. So to put these incompetent individuals who are only good at one thing, destruction, they're good at destroying things. They're not good at building things. And here's where uh, uh, an example I could bring up comes into play. Uh, when I was teaching my youngest son to drive, I told this to my eldest son, all my children I teach him to drive. Uh, one night I was driving him down a, a quiet road. He was driving and I said, here's something you have to bear in mind. As quiet as this road looks, the buildings, the, you know, the, there was a farm on the side, every, you know, all kinds of things like that. It took a lot of people to create that road, that community, those buildings, all of those things. It just, it took a lot of people. If you think about what it is to build a healthy society, it takes a lot of people, a lot of energy, a lot of political work to do it. Mm -hmm. But it takes one asshole to turn it, to tear it all down. Yeah. If he drives irresponsibly, he could crash it into people's homes, he could start fires. Mm -hmm. He could ruin the lives of others. He could create a situation. One, one idiot, in a, one, one imbecile in a car, one, one imbecile 
in a in a place that has had has so many weapons, so many resources, so many people linked to it. And by the way, I'm not one of the, these people buying to this nonsense. You know, part of the problem of American nationalism is this imperial colonial belief that the end of America is the end of the world. Now, the world has existed a long time before America became the, the, the hegemonic power. Mm. And as we know, you know, the, Britain still thinks it's a hegemonic power, you know, so they still think they have an empire, but people go on after an empire. Portugal continues without empire. You know, Spain continues without empire. France, still, they, they're, they're, the, the right wing of the French want to have their empire, but the truth is, if you took the money it's getting from African colonies out of France, France would just, just out, collapse. You know? Yeah, yeah. They always talk about what they do mm -hmm. for Africa. If you took what Africa does for Europe out of the equation, Europe would just sink into a hole. Mm -hmm. So, and we can go all the way back, but we know in ancient times people lived beyond empire. So, the fact of the matter is, the real issue for the United States or for Brazil, because was what Bolsonaro is doing is the same kind of idiotic, nostalgic effort to, to, to have big men who imagine that they're virile and can face off any illness in the world. The same problem with Modi, Modi in uh, India. We're seeing this all over the place. And we've seen, we've seen this Tom Fulry as well in South Africa on what happened with Zuma and others. There is this idiotic notion that you can, you can simply, you know, stand up and act like it's all about physical strength and machismo and all of this stuff. But the fact of the matter is, what every country has to understand, and I think we're seeing this acutely through the novel coronavirus and the COVID-19 pandemic, what every country has to understand is that we live in a different world. When about even colonialism, when we talk about 19th century, 18th century, 17th century, whatever previous century, those people lived on a much larger planet. They lived on a planet where to get from one part of the planet to the other, uh, for instance, when Magellan went to go sail, get, to, get to the Pacific, uh, to get to the Philippines and those areas, took three years. They live in a world where you count the human population in the millions. We live in a world where we count the human population in the billions. Billions. We live in a world in which we, right now, although we're physically distant, you're right. You're in Kenya. I'm in the United States. We're not socially distant because mm. we're communicating. I hate the term social distancing. No, me too. That's a neoliberal neo term. It's physical yeah. distancing, but we can be socially close. Yeah. We live in a world of technological resources where in a microsecond, we can be in touch with each other. Mm -hmm. We can move finance in a microsecond. We can, and in addition to that, even with physical movement, if there weren't the, the pandemic, we, we could, we, we could, we live in a world in which I could have got up this morning and said to you, I will see you this evening. And it, get on a plane, it, yeah, and be there. So mm -hmm. once and and anybody could anybody who who understands space and time could tell you this: when you can traverse a large distance in a shorter amount of time, space shrinks. So we live on a smaller planet. 
you see? And because we live on a smaller planet, the kind of challenges we face are very different challenges. Because we're, many people are still living in the logic of a larger planet, they don't understand why a sneeze in Wuhan can lead to a dying person in, in New York City. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or, or, or a, a person, despite being quarantined in, in, um, in Sao Paulo, can, it can lead to a series of effects, lead to a person dying in Nairobi. Well, the other part people are not paying attention to is also these other dimensions. You know, in South Africa, nearly all of the, 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 the infections are coming from a small set of tourists, white tourists. You know, tourists. a lot of people, a lot of people right now are, are talking to Africans. You know, the fact of the matter is the, 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 the people who have the mobility, the ability to move around physically tend to be the affluent and they mm -hmm. tend to be lighter, lighter in complexion. They tend to be whites. So as much as there's an effort to, ra to racialize COVID-19 the way the, the Trump administration is doing, call it, want to call it the Chinese disease, the fact of the matter is the largest spreaders are Europeans. That's right. And, and they're not, you know, and, I mean, if you look in Ecuador, one plane from Spain led to the death landing in Ecuador led to the deaths of so many people. So, 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 the, but the fact of the matter is yeah. the initial, this, this illness, uh, the mistake of mystifying it. So for instance, a lot of people in rural areas across Africa, uh, a lot of the, the, the issue is not those people. The issue is the people who want to have a kind of weird um, rural tourism uh, who may be carrying the, corona, the novel coronavirus to those communities. Mm. But, but even in this, those communities, although they're not socially distant, they're able to be physically distant in a way that's very different from urban environments. So accident in New York City was hit the way it was or why Sao Paulo is the way it, it is, or London, or why in the case of Kenya, one has to think more about Nairobi. Mm -hmm. but, but there are certain other ways in which one can, 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 in a more politically responsible way, respond to something like this. So if we look at what's going on in the United States right now, what we are seeing is a response to multiple pandemics. We're seeing a response to the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Which, mm -hmm. which, which, which ultimately comes down to the question of not being able to breathe. Although it's not a, only a respiratory virus, it affects the entire body. The yeah. point is when you have cardiac arrest, you can't breathe, okay? Fanon referred to, you know, the people becoming revolutionary because he said there's a point at which they can't breathe. They need oxygen. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no accident when, when we look at these circumstances. We think about uh, Eric Garner. I, for a long time, as you remember, used to wear a T-shirt that said, I can't I breathe. I can't breathe. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And similarly, this man, well, okay, mm. he died. George Rogers died with his last words, I can't breathe. This is the allegory of the pandemics, but it's the, it's the pandemic pandemic 
of, of, of malevolent governing forces. It's uh, yes. so the people are, the people are taking the streets because they're fighting multiple pandemics. Pandemics. Yeah, mm. and they're fighting the pandemic, the pandemic of 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 malevolent governing forces. And malevolent governing forces are those that are neo-fascist, right? The neo I just call them fascists because this is what they are, the neoliberals, the neoconservatives. These are it these are people who function ironically exactly like the virus. Mm -hmm. Because they don't build institutions. They look for sites of vulnerability Ability. and tear them down. Yeah. Their governing yeah. policies are identical to the virus moving through the body. Mm -hmm. So if people are outraged that I'm comparing the Trump administration to the coronavirus, they could be outraged all their want. It is at a social level identical. Then, and it's an yeah. accident that under, under their leadership, so many people are dying mm -hmm. in one of the most technologically, um, I don't like the word advanced, but people who have access to so many technological resources, so many economic resources, and so many other structural resources, these individuals are spent their entire time uh, it, over the past few years since the Obama administration looking for every site of vulnerability and making them worse. If that's yeah. not acting like, like the novel coronavirus, I don't know what else is. One could not have written a better script. It's almost as if this is from it's a like poetry. It's almost as if this is coming out of a novel by by Gugi Wationgo <laughs> or by uh, or by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, one couldn't have written could not have written a, a better allegory of the present. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I have a, a, a last question. Um, we are both uh, academics, so I don't know what you you what you are doing to I don't know what what is it cover up. But maybe since we are also talking about technology, um, I feel that we are placing too much faith in technology. So I don't know what uh, questions about education and technology in this time have have come up, and where should we what should we be thinking about as we go forward now that we can't meet with students in the classrooms? Uh, are there things we, we need to do about the structure of education itself? And, you know, do you think this faith, like here we have a faith in e-learning that can kind of uh, remove all the problems we've had with uh, education, that technology can do that. So, um, yeah, where do you see education going forward? What What do you think we sh What should we think about uh, when it comes to tech and the way it 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 relates to to education? I think we should continue the allegory. Yes. The yeah. But they can't breathe. Mm -hmm. And well. We have the equipment going on in education right now, and it started before this this pandemic, the the the, the actual uh, biological pandemic unfolded. And what that is, is that uh, the attack on democracy also has within it the attack on education, because yes. ultimately, uh, for democracy to work, you need an educated citizenry, 
And when I say educated, I'm not talking simply about formal certificate education, right? I'm talking about the learning of what it is to learn together in a community. What has happened on the neoliberal models of schooling, okay? And you notice I didn't say education. Yeah. Again, neoliberalism is anti-education. Neoliberalism wants certification to replace education. And already this is happening. There are many people at the most elite places right now. One reason we're in trouble right now is because the people who are dominating the world, who are governing the world right now, are people who are well-certified imbeciles. Because they were able to go to the most prestigious schools and got there and paid because they're rich to get certification, but no education. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're so extraordinarily, they're just bombastically stupid. But the fact of the matter is education is, is, is something that's far different because you see what education is about, it's not a, simply about information. One can peruse the internet and get a lot of information. You can get misinformation too. Yeah. But you could pick up even a good quality book and just get information. Education is about learning how to learn. Education, so education always has implicit in it a form of freedom and agency that, that, that puts you in a position of ongoing growth. Okay? So this is why you know someone is educated. You know, for instance, as a teacher, that your goal is not to make your student dependent on you. You're most proud as a teacher when your student can do her work on her own, that she has reached a point where in fact she's able to, where you find yourself learning from your student. That's when you know you're a good educator. So that, right, if we think about education, is the people who want certification over education, there are people at business schools, including at NYU Business School, for example, where this is the greatest thing because for them, it's all about establishment models of assessment. So for them, it's not about whether you're educated at Harvard. It's whether Harvard has a greater um, capital value. It's not whether, whether uh, you, you uh, can work for a, a, a community bank that makes your community better. It's whether you are dealing with you know, Chase Morgan, J.P. Morgan, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. For them or Google or Facebook or whatever. For them, it's about social. It's, it's about capital. End of story. So by definition, for instance, for them, one would have to call, say, Trump brilliant because he just simply is the president. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so in, the, so in other words, it doesn't at all deal with the, the, the inequalities, the unjust stacking of systems, the fact that some of the most incompetent people are being placed in the most powerful positions. So it means that we now are facing a situation where as certification begins to overpower education, we as educators are finding ourselves in a situation where we can't breathe. It's that, true. That is so true. That's how I feel. I feel well, like I can't what, breathe. That's correct. And so now mm-hmm. here's the thing, but here's the mistake. The way they trap us is to push us into false dilemmas. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? The false dilemma is all or nothing when we think about them. So, for instance, it's ridiculous to, to, to say all um, remote learning, online learning, e-learning, whatever language we're, we're talking about. Obviously, for instance, you and I are right now on Zoom. This is a great thing. 
Yeah. It means there are people I will, I will never meet in person. But if these ideas are useful to them, they can use them in their lives, wherever they are, and even beyond you, our lives. If, this, if there's an archive where this is maintained, people in the future could use it. That's a good thing. The mistake is to make this the exclusive medium. You see? In other words, I would never want to have this replace what happened. We have classroom learning, etc. But at the same time, I don't think it's good to have exclusive classroom learning. You see? There are things, no matter how much you and I speak, that I learn. If I were in Kenya, when I was, when I, there's so many things, no matter how much I read about, I've, I've as you know, been all over the world except Antarctica. But, <laughs> but, but the thing I've learned is that no matter how much I've read, no matter how much I've communicated with people, no matter how much I've done with Skype and Zoom or else, there is a whole different reality when I'm actually there in that country communicating. I could see, smell, feel, understand things and, and learn, and they could learn with me in a very different way. When I was with among the Maori, as an example, there's so many misrepresentations of Maori people. And Maori people, no matter how much they could try to write, the point is they, 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 some of the, even some of the misrepresentations, they don't know because they're not here in this country in an everyday conversation with people with the misrepresentations. Mm -hmm. but, when I, but when I'm there and I, I began to see certain things, that I was like, wow, that, you know, and I was talking with Maori friends and they were saying, wow, you know, we didn't realize that either. In other words, we can learn about ourselves from the foreigner, but also we, we as the foreigner can learn when we visit places. Yeah. But the thing is, I, and, and that's because even though I was invited as a keynote speaker for an event organized by Maori, I saw myself there as a student to learn among the Maori. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So even though I offered my views of the world, I was also learning many things. So I began to, for instance, see something that many Maori knew but did not think about in their, it, at the time, which is the structure of a traditional Maori house. This Maori house is structured in a way that as the, the ancestor looks at you, and then there are certain rules that can only be done out of sight of the ancestor, such as violence. Now that is politically rich. And of mm -hmm. course, and, and so it's no accident that right now there are and they can offer, they're not only things that they're reaching out to across the world to fight for democracy, but, but there's so much that also people in this other parts of the world can learn from Maori people in that solidarity. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so similarly, you were there when I spoke in Nairobi, when I was giving the talk in the top of that YMCA around Kenya. It was yeah. striking, isn't it? Because there were so many communities who were there, some of whom were enemies. It was really interesting to find how talking about Phnom brought so many communities together and it's because they were more focused on the question that brought the community into a conversation. And so this, this, this kind of understanding, you see, these are some of the things that we should bring to bear in the present. So do you think um, the university as it is currently structured is sustainable? No, I don't think, I don't, I don't think, remember, remember you're my view of disciplinary decadence. 
Yeah. The problem is we keep trying to keep one model to fit all. Mm -hmm. We need a living university. Living universities must adapt and respond to the needs of the people. You see? Yeah. If you think about what happened in many of the colonies, right? What happened when, when independence came? When, when independence came, the people began to connect to the rest of the world and create their versions of what the rest of the world does. I'm sure, for instance, there are, there are uniquely Kenyan styles of pizza, right? There's Kenyan jazz and hip hop, right? Yeah. And among different communities of Kenya, whether it's Kikoyo, Lua, et cetera. In South Africa, there's Zulu style of jazz, hip hop, there's Koza, there's Swata style, et cetera. There's Wolof style. I go all over the world, I see these. That is healthy because it means they're living. It, it'll be silly for a person, for a person, um, in, in Senegal to be doing ex hip hop exactly the way a person in Oakland or in New York City does it. They have to do it their way. But the point is that's how they're to enjoy it. Same with foods, same with attire. They made it their way and it's living and it could communicate with the rest of the world. But look at what happened at the time of independence. The, the, the governing structures are almost identical to the colonial ones, the same parliamentary system. What the hell are people in Kenya doing wearing powdered wigs? No! I mean, stupid. And then you have, uh, but not only there, if you look at it, what if it remained intact? The economic system remained the same as the colonial economic system. The governing system remains the same as the governing, uh, the colonial one. The, the religious systems are very similar, right? Yeah, of, yeah. It's colonial Christianity these people are practicing. Yes. I, I'm, not saying don't, I'm not saying don't be Christian if you want to be Christian, mm. but, but, develop, but develop a kind of living Christianity that fits. A lot, a lot of Kenyans probably don't even know. A lot of people across, I found across Africa don't even know that for a period of 500 years, the dominating Christianity was African. They don't even know it. They don't, they don't know that ancient Africa didn't stop at the Suez Canal. It reached all the way through to Jordan, all the way up to the Balkans. That, that Jerusalem, all those, Jerusalem, those places were African places. And they don't realize that the early people who, 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 who articulated Christianity, whether, people they call the church fathers, they were church mothers, but unfortunately that's a complicated story how they were erased. But they were Africans. There were people like Tertullian, Oregon, St. Augustine. They were, those were all Africans. So there's this, and they were articulating a very African Christianity that was later subverted because when Islam occurred on the other side, they became the domination of a very European Christianity. And mm -hmm. that European Christianity is now a colonizing Christianity in Africa. But there is a way in which, if, and so my point is, I'm not a Christian, I'm not into Christianity, but I do not take the position that Africans, if they want to be Christian, should be Christian. But be, think about it in an African way. What is a living African way, the way I talked about medicine? And so if we think about that, same with education. The mm. problem with education is that it's a very colonial inherited education system that expects to remain the same for all time. But no, there need to be a more living understanding on every level from curriculum to communicating pra communicative practices. And it means we should use all at our disposal to create living education. So that means then that, that those old models 
I, I, I think colonial education is not sustainable because we need to go beyond what I don't understand is why these dead systems are so powerful in an African country. You know, it's almost like people panic. I mean, it's a literal panic when you suggest that it should be changed. I don't understand that attachment. And yet in another conversation, people will talk about, let's go to our roots, let's do this and that. I don't understand this dichotomy. Well, yeah. the thing well. Well, the thing that I'm saying is actually a little different. And mm -hmm. what I'm saying is actually for many people very scary. Because okay. I'm, not saying, I'm not saying go to your roots. I'm saying don't forget your roots, which is different. Yeah. What, yeah. what I'm saying is something very different. What I'm saying is we need to build something that would actually be livable for subsequent generations. And here's where it's different. You see, if you look at it this way, okay? Um, mm. The way most people, uh, let me use it in an, as an example of the way I talk about the right and the left. Most people think the right and the left is just a matter of political parties, but it's something more complicated. I argue the right and the left is connected to the way, fundamentally to the way one responds to a crisis. You see? The way people who tend to be to the right or conservative respond to a crisis, and what, the, what a crisis is, is a situation in which a decision must be made. Mm. Okay, that's what a crisis is. In fact, that's the origins of the word. It's in krenai, means to decide. The way that a conservative to a right, through to the right wing respond to a crisis is to say, we have to go back to a time when things were perfect yeah yeah yes and, and, that's, that's familiar and, yeah and then and and then they say the reason is because we're in a crisis because the crisis is a state of insecurity and uncertainty so that means to have security and certainty we need to have order and mm. that's what all always yes. turn to law, order, tradition, and, and, and a naive belief in perfection. Yeah. Now, of course, that means you have to eliminate all sources of, 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 of form dissonance, difference, etc. That's why all turns to the right always take the form of xenophobia. It's always, it's always an attack on women because women tend to represent within that framework, some notion of differentiation. It, it always eventually collapses into a form of racism because you have to find people who are not really people. And eventually, it collapses into a form of unanimism, which is there's only one way to do everything, and that's when it becomes pure fascism. Okay? Now you take another approach. Some people respond to crises by saying, you know what? When I look at the past, it was never perfect. How do I know? Because people in the past were always trying to find a way to make things better. Mm. If things were perfect, they wouldn't have been trying to make it better in the first place. So it's just our time to try to make things better. Those, but the future now is a future in which they have to act. And because they have to act, the problem is, it means they are dealing with the, 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 the dissonant, the dissidents, the change, the differences, etc., and it means that their 
now radically responsible for the outcomes. And this is why people tend to be afraid, you see, because the first one is easy. Just give up your freedom, right? That's when you turn to the right. And that's why it's always domination and all that stuff. The second one, you have to take responsibility for your freedom, which means if it doesn't work out, you're responsible. If it works out, you're also you're responsible. responsible. Yeah. You're responsible either way. And there are two kinds of, that tends to be the left, but there, but there are some left-wing people who confuse freedom and liberty. Some people think the problem is that there, there's any order at all. It's about getting rid of everything and have anarchy, et cetera, okay? And, but the problem with that is that they then tend to want to look for a kind of purity, you know, that, mm -hmm. that and they don't, you see, the, you see how it slides back into the right? Yeah. Because, because nothing is ever pure enough. That's the types who would say, for instance, get rid of all the technologies, all of this, all of that, but then you're back into conservatism. And then there's another model that says, no, freedom is not about being able to do whatever you want and having no constraints. Freedom is about the responsibility and to work with others to take, to, to communicate, to figure out how we are able to build the world that we are going to um, um, set the conditions for others to inherit. So if you, if, you, if you think about some of the earlier questions you asked, right? The people who are, who, are, who, are, uh, who are taking to the streets or the people or what you're doing right now, taking responsibility for this conversation, that is the realization that everything we're doing in the human world, it's not, it's not that we created the material life, but the very meaning, the social relations, the power relations, those are, those are in our hands. Mm -hmm. And so, so that way of education, which is, you know, the technical term I use for it is the teleological suspension of disciplinarity. But the short way of that is the, the willingness to go beyond the world as currently conceived for the possibilities to come. Mm -hmm. and, and that is scary for many people, which is why they tend to say, oh, no, we, want, we just want to go to our roots and we don't want to, you know, they don't understand. No, no, no. You see, um, it's, it's about understanding your roots, but because you have to start from somewhere, but what you build that's different. If you're going to go, if you're going to move away from a colonial structure, one has to understand that, that it's not about purification. It's about understanding that, that history, but, but in it build something that can actually work better for the people at hand. And that's why, that is also why good educators are always perpetual students. They continue to learn because what they had to offer students yesterday is not necessarily the best things to offer them today. Mm -hmm. And that's why one should continue learning and learn also how to use multiple pedagogical resources in that project. Wow, that's a, that's a good place to end. Um... Uh, I, I asked you if you could give us a, an evocation to, to <laughs> well, finish this because I find 
these days, I don't know, I, I, I find learning a bit more emotionally involving. So I like to have mm -hmm. something emotional and spiritual every time I'm ending, ending a discussion. Well, I agree yeah. with you with that. As you know, when I organized the Caribbean Philosophical Association, we, we, one of the things we did related to our conversation is to say we should not be mimetic. We should be imitations of the North American and the European associations. Mm -hmm. And what we, so we decided we have to figure out what does philosophy and ideas mean for us, but also not just their content, but how we implement them. So in that organization, we always start the day either with a griot or with a poet. And that says a lot. If you go to an academic meeting, it opens with a poet. That says we'll do, and we always start the celebration with dancing at the beginning because we shouldn't be ashamed of how, of how we communicate and celebrate life together. Mm -hmm. And it makes that organization more communicative because once you're able to, once you realize that the person you are um, working with in the meeting is not your enemy. It's a person actually that with whom you're learning together. Hmm. Then that creates a different environment. And we always close ceremony, with, with not simply by saying the meeting is over, but we also have an evocation, et cetera. And I actually see those connected to the way we talked about health, the way we talked about yeah. ideas, I see them all as good. As you know, in many of my public lectures, I also perform music. You could hear some of it now. Yes. Right? And, and that's another way in which, because I argue that's also the way we connect, not only with ancestors, but descendants. So there, so, but right now we're in a period of um, so many people dying. Yeah. Every day it breaks my heart to think, uh, not only those who are dying from the pandemic, but also the wars, the, the multitudes of, of, of other forms of suffering, the refugees, when we think about what's going on, uh, the attacks on immigrants, when we think about what's going on in terms of the, 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 the desecration of the planet, when we think about the, 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 the distortions of history, even the very notion of truth is under attack. All of these are connected. And so I take very seriously, I think at this moment, one of the things I would like to say is that, well, as I could put it in a very simple way, oh, ancestors, once begotten, but should never be forgotten. We think through as we face the problems of our time that ultimately the question that is posed in our actions for every generation is whether we act in such a way in which they look back at us with regret or whether we act in such a way in which they look to their, um, their future and they look back at us, their ancestors, and say, thank God you acted. So it says right now to me that the question we should ask ourselves as we think through, is that we should remember that we are not gods, but that is something through which we have been given the precious gift of freedom, because with our humility is also our responsibility, not simply to ourselves, but through our act of radical love for each other. So I bring this down to show you. This is a yard side candle. As you know, I'm Jewish, but 
as a lot of people don't realize, I could regard Judaism as an East African, okay, as an East African religion. Today, people look at it in very different ways. It's a mixture of East African and West Asians. But as we know, in Africa, the meaning, there are many things that we think through, and it's not just in Africa and Asia, many people think through, is that there's something when we try to remember ancestors, and we think about those today who have become ancestors, we don't think of them as a darkness in the, in the sense of the extinguishing of light. We think of them as a light. And so with that, I light this candle. So you and I can actually, and with all the viewers, think through. Think that you're not supposed to blow it out, right? You have to make it through mm. nature. Um, think through the fact that they are our light. And it's our duty to make sure that they did not pass on in vain. So with that, we give a simple thing that usually begins in Hebrew, which means to praise not only the God of the universe, but all creation, but also of ethical life. 